Hello and welcome to the Rogue Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Picard. I'm here to share stories of those in both sports and the wider working world, from those who have innovated, faced adversity, challenged the status quo, or who have approached impossible challenges and succeeded. Our shared stories aim to inspire action and stimulate different ways of thinking. The Rogue Monkey is a multi-platform podcast that will bring to life those moments that makes the impossible seem possible, the dreams to become realised and hopefully bring out the creative side in our listeners. Find our show on all the usual podcast platforms, get in touch via our website www.theroguemonkey.org or find us on social media. Just search for The Rogue Monkey Podcast. This week's episode, we have coaching academic Dr. David Turner. Working in the realm of sport from primary education through to university level, David has had an amazing career. Looking at great depth into the way in which coaches learn, how we develop cultures of learning, and has studied some of the greatest coaches of all time. Whether you work in sport, business, or any other sector, some of the messages from this episode are wholly transferable into any walk of life. I hope you take a lot away from it. Hello and welcome to the episode, David. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's a privilege to be honoured and to be asked to come on the early show. Well, thanks very much. It's um, it's really interesting to kind of go back and visit, I guess, an element of my past because we connected when we were at, well, I was at university and you were working there. Yeah. So just to get started and give our... Uh, listeners a bit of a background can you um, run through your your story so far yeah sure um, my journey has been mostly working in education for the last 34 years um, I guess I'm quite rare in the fact that I've worked from primary right the way up to university although I spent most of my time at university last 20 years coaching in uh, lecturing in sports coaching um, along the way I've also been a sports coach and uh, dabbled in aspects of strength and conditioning, uh, been an aerobics instructor, weights instructor, that sort of thing. So all of that I would class as being an educator, um, including the sports coach bit. Um, I think one of the things about my journey is the diversity of experiences and what I would recommend to people who want to work in education, as you probably know, not some people don't last too long in education, I think I would recommend taking on new challenges and making sure that it's a stimulating journey for you. Um, one of my recommendations to colleagues was move on every five years if you haven't done what you want to do. Didn't take my own advice in the last job, more about that later. But um, keep on moving, keep on growing, I would say. Um, the theme behind the work I've done in my career is probably helping others to help themselves to be the best they can be. And a nice message from an ex-student um, when I did leave my last post was a nice Arsene Wenger quote that he used to me about his growth. That He says... Um, I stimulated or helped to stimulate is uh, he made the impossible possible which is a a nice um, thing for an educator to take away I think. I think it's really interesting when you when you look back on and I'm sure a lot of the the coaches out there that are listening can relate to that actually saying well regardless of what sport you're in trying to make people as people the best they can be Mm. uh, and not solely looking at it from either if it's academics, an academic point of view, or if it's coaching, a performance point of view, but actually going, developing good individuals through sport and using that as a vehicle to do so. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think of that. There's a lovely journal article about the All Blacks, uh, and they talk about better people make better All Blacks. Um, but going back to the point I made earlier about helping others to help themselves to be the best they can be, there's a, there's a subtle difference there, that helping them to help themselves. Um, and I think that becomes really interesting for me in terms of helping people to take responsibility for their developmental journey, whatever it is, as a whole person. That empowerment, really, to actually say, and I, I talk about this when I do parent talks, to actually say on, on race day, when they're behind the block, they're yeah. on their own. Yeah. And the metaphor for that, in an exam hall, they're going to be on their own. In a job interview, they're going to be on their yeah. own. Yeah. If they go to university on day one, they're going to be on their own. Yeah. So it's fostering that independence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're facilitators of performance, but ultimately they own the performance. Um, so therefore, that's why my philosophy has always been about helping people to own their own developmental pathways, because that, that's the bigger picture. You're behind the blocks and you've got to own that moment, but you've got to also own the journey, I think. When you get to, I think, to, to any level in sport, definitely something I emphasise with young athletes I work with is that it's not that, that single moment in time. They're the sum of the parts leading up to that. And yeah. if you deliver a F-grade standard in terms of your, your application and your mindset and, mm. and the way you deliver your, your day-to-day work, when it comes to that big moment, that's the result you're going to get. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd bring in a nice quote from Pete Carroll, the American football coach who famously lost the Super Bowl final with what some journalists described as the worst decision in Super Bowl history. Um, you know, and he was grilled about that afterwards and he said uh, the ultimate phrase, which is, one moment does not define you, the journey does, which I think is really powerful. It's really interesting when you see athletes retire and maybe are interviewed a little bit afterwards when they've had time to kind of reflect and actually mm. they've removed themselves from that bubble of sport and they can actually turn around and say, Yes, it was amazing, all these achievements and accolades and stuff like that, but actually there are friends that I've made across this journey. Yeah. There are experiences I've had that have completely shaped my life. Yeah. And those things can't necessarily be measured on a scoreboard. No, I think um, I think I was reading about, and this, this might be where you want your pause, uh, who was it? It's Bowman, Bob Bowman and Phelps. Yeah. And I know that um, in that, obviously, they've got these fantastic achievements, but it was more about the journey and it was more about the process. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of sports are now starting to move more and more down is actually, you're seeing it at the sharp end, but it's trying to move further down the pathway to actually say it is about the process and at the end of that 10 year journey, you're gonna have 10 years worth of experiences that are not necessarily defined by a minute or six, you know, whatever the, the race is or the event they're mm -hmm. doing. And actually it's the sum of all those individual experiences and amazing moments that in 20 years time when they have kids and they're looking back they're talking about that fun camp they went on or that one line that their coach said to them i think it was really interesting actually um whilst not being a massive reality tv fan uh, this i think it was this year just gone uh, on i'm a celebrity they had ian wright on there and mm. him and caitlin jenner were both recounting moments they had with coaches when they were younger yes um, and teachers that they had said I owe a lot to that person who set me on that path and said that one thing at the right time. And I think we can almost get a bit caught up in the, the glitz and the glamour of certain person's mm. achievement, but actually the, the roots of that success were, were sown a long time before that. Yeah, I know we might talk about um, the doctorate that I did on development of coaching expertise later, but one of the things that I found in that, I expected there to be critical incidents in coaches' developmental journeys. Moments when s certain things happened uh, that were a trigger one way or the other. What I found was 
that what was more important were critical encounters, particular people at particular moments in time, just as yeah. you're saying. Um, so I think that was a, that was an interesting aspect of that research. And it's a looking back as well, because very often that moment in time, although at the time you may have gone, oh, that's quite interesting, you actually look back and realise, wow, that had a real influence over the path that I've taken, whether that's in sport or whether that's in any walk of life, you can you can look back into some really successful people's history and often the the mark of the route they were going to go down was seen a long time before they actually became publicly successful. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes those people don't even recall those incidents, those people, until you do undertake research and, and take them through that process and then they realise how significant someone was. Yeah. Really, really interesting. So I guess as you, as you moved through your, your journey from you know, primary education and all of that to kind of where you finished, did you feel, at now looking back retrospectively, you could zone in on any of those points that were critical? Oh, in my journey? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, that That's going to take a bit of reflection, but if, if I think about it, I don't know when the actual moment was, but there was that moment when I changed from thinking of coaching or education as helping helping people to be better to that moment of helping people to help themselves. And I can't pick out the moment, but progressively, I think, I think we've talked about this in the past, I've been on this journey to find the self-determined learner and the importance of those learners being self-determined in their journey. Um, and as I've gone on in, in education, I think I'm trying to promote self-determined learning more and more is this wonderful word that we come across now called hertagogy, uh, and it's self-determined learning. Um, and it's all about what we've been talking about, people taking direction, taking ownership. Uh, there's a lovely quote that I used at the end of the doctorate, if I can just quickly do it. And it was, this was about experts, but I think it could be taken down to a lower level as well. It's a poet called Muriel Strode, and she wrote, I will not follow where the path may lead, but I will go where there is no path, and I will leave a trail. And if, if we get people to take ownership, then, you know, exponentially they go beyond us and open up their own paths and do things that would surprise us, um, you know, which is delightful. I mean, one of those is, you know, you've kindly been talking to me about how you set up your podcast. It's absolutely delightful to see you as an ex-student taking on a project you're passionate about and me able to learn off you. And that's, that's, that's a really satisfying part of the journey of being an educator, I think. Well, it's, I think that's something, again, I'm sure many of the people, that whether they're from an academic or coaching or any background where they're in some form of mentoring or development role, can actually look back and they do have those moments, especially, I think, when you're working with younger athletes because often I work with, say, when I was full-time for maybe 12-year-olds through to maybe 15, 16-year-olds, I will now see them at university events. Mm -hmm. And I, somebody I remember as uh, maybe a very um, young and potentially immature child and I actually bump into him as a young adult and you have a conversation with them and it's an adult conversation mm, and you mm. think wow how this person's come on from that sometimes frustrating teenager and you actually think we've played a part in that or however small that is and that's uh, almost one of the most forget the performance elements and maybe the outcomes that we see for some of our bigger athletes and stuff like that but actually saying you just become very proud of that personal development they've had. Yeah, I think it's the same parallel as you said earlier about the bigger picture with athletes and performance or students and performance. It's the bigger picture of the coaching journey as well and being a humble part of the development of human beings. It's the human story and that's what it's all about. That's what ties it together, I guess. Most certainly. So we talked really a lot there about 
coaches almost taking responsibility to pass the athletes on to taking their own responsibility, yep. if that makes sense. They're actually shifting the onus a little bit to say um, a coach's role, despite having the title of coach, is to actually empower someone to develop themselves as opposed to doing the raw spoon feeding. Yeah, I'd say helping them to learn how to learn. Um, that, that's a, a huge part. You know, If you're a coach or an educator and your athletes or, you, or your students have learned how to learn, you don't even have to be there. The process is ongoing, your influence is ongoing. Um, and their self-influence is ongoing. So, yeah, it's certainly empowerment. Um, it's certainly helping them to develop a culture of learning to learn, and I know um, we'll touch upon that further later. Okay, so moving a little bit further down the pathway, so you you went into the university world. You, how long were you at Hertfordshire for? 14 years. And so I ignored my own advice about moving on every five <laughs> years. Um, but you, I guess it was a bit different because I was trying to get the doctorate done there uh, and I guess there's a parallel with coaching. You get sucked into projects, don't you? Designing a new degree, recruiting a new staff team, um, then trying to get the doctorate done and things like that. Um, so that pinned me in place for a while. Do you think, um, as, you, as you went across that time there, obviously you were doing a lot for, for others in, in terms of developing the course and bringing the team on board to yeah. deliver that, but do you felt like there was a kind of a journey you went on in terms of your own development during that period? Um, there was, but there was also a, a stagnation as well. And I think there's two elements we need to think about there as educators and coaches. People have started to write about care in sports coaching. There's a lovely book by Cronin and Armour that I would recommend. Um, and care is a wonderful thing. And we've talked about the human investment and, and the reward of all that. But it's like many things, it's a double-edged sword. You care too much, you don't develop yourself sometimes. Or uh, as a chapter in in um, Cronin and Armour's book identifies, you know, your marriage can break up and stuff like that. Um, if, if you're out too many nights and all that. So uh, I think we need to be careful as educators to develop ourselves as well and keep that balance. Um, I use this terrible phrase, but I'll go for it. If you don't care for the carers, who's going to care for the cared? Um, so so you, you've, there's got to be that balance there. Care's a wonderful thing, and I think for, for the best coaches, it's something that athletes latch onto and, and students latch onto. But we've got to look after ourselves too. I think there's been a huge push over recent years with the, the prominence of mental health and things like the news yeah. and maybe high-profile athletes who have come out and coaches and spoke about the importance of it. But I think the the necessity for a much better um, system that not just says, as coaches, you should look after yourself, but actually almost forces their hand to look after themselves in terms mm. of you talk to coaches and there's a number of coaches I've worked with in recent years, certainly in my current job, he'll say oh no I work six weeks without a day off mm. and I'm like that's insanity mm. and they go yeah but I love it I said that's wonderful but in six months you'll be in a hospital bed and they they almost don't sit they're blinded by their passion and to actually say if you're actually gonna if you really do want to do this as a career and you really do love it then you need to find that that balance because it, there's no longevity in it otherwise no it's interesting I did come across the same it was a, this was a light bulb moment. The same thing in, during the doctoral research. I asked these expert coaches, you know, how hard are you working? When do you rest? When do you regenerate? They weren't regenerating. They weren't resting. And I had this light bulb moment of thinking about periodization. And you know, we wouldn't dream of having a periodized plan where an athlete didn't have time for recovery and rest. 
but then we put ourselves through it uh, as a coach and, and your person saying I haven't had a day's rest so where's the where's the coherence in that vision uh, and where's the kind of humanity and compassion for yourself as well as the process you're taking athletes or students through something that I've, I've been kind of working on behind the scenes so I've got a colleague in London who, who's put together a really good pack to support coaches so as a sport in swimming we're regionally set up and I cover in the east but my, my colleague in London he has been working effectively on a coaching pack mm. um, and part of that when you actually think about what a coaching course is generally if you talk across the traditional level one level two one of the first things they'll pick up on there is periods of training blocks of training mm. how to design a training program but at no point is there the, the dot join to actually say that includes yourself mm. and mm. I remember I can't remember which football team it was but it was one of the, the bigger well-known teams and I was at a conference last year, the UK Coaching Research Conference, and someone said that on day one, when they took this post managing these team of coaches, they said, the first thing you're going to do is book your holidays with your family, and we're going to work backwards from that. And I said, that's really Excellent. interesting, because as coaches, we go, what are the three main meets of the year? And we work backwards mm, from that and design yeah. our program. And I think that's something that we're, we're trying to evolve this coaching pack to actually give people some support from the word go and not allow that bad habit to creep in of I'll, I'll just do that bit extra on Saturday well actually you were supposed to spend time with your kids or your friends on Saturday well that's the fourth week in a row you've done that oh yeah but I'm really enjoying it mm -hmm. and that does become quite toxic yeah just just quickly I think in some sports such as football you know that there's a culture of overworking it's like a badge of honour um, but again how sustainable is it um, so, so I think we have got to think about that balance and we have got to think about looking after ourselves a little bit. Um, the pack sounds interesting and I, I like the way they're working backwards from, from the coach's needs, broader needs. I guess one example to bring in at the moment is uh, Klopp's stance on, on not going to the FA Cup replay game uh, but being available by, by laptop. Uh, and I think his stance was, we were promised a winter break my first team players are not playing. I'm the coach. I'm not coaching. Uh, and I, I quite respected that stance of we're, we're meant to have a rest. We're going to protect that rest period. I've just um, finished an audio book called Klopp, Bring the Noise, which yeah. I mentioned to you when we first spoke. And people listening, I couldn't recommend that enough if, that, if you're into just coaching generally, but the wider essence of working in coaching with people mm. because when you listen to some of the things he did especially when he was in his earlier days and it, there was so much passion for people versus a singular passion for sport mm. and that then almost actually raised everybody to a new level because if they felt like they've they don't need permission per se to actually rest and recover and have that social time which then men when they came to the training sessions within what would be considered a well-balanced program they were at a high level mm. because of it and mm. i think that's something well, the book was actually wrote before klopp has done his first few seasons at liverpool mm. and what was really interesting was to see I think there's a few quotes at the end of it from Dortmund to say we predict and they literally listed off everything that's happened since he's been there and it was just okay. really interesting to see that they'd already seen the seeds of what is required to deliver a sustainable level of high performance mm. and they, they said that's what's going to happen and obviously it has. Mm. Um, Favourite quick story about Klopp is that he also sat down the groundsman for about 40 minutes apparently when he got there on the sofa you know who are you where are you from what you, you know so bigger picture again as well about making connections and making people feel part of a big project 
Yeah, and he did. I think when it was first started at Dortmund, he got he did a team meeting, but he brought in the kit cleaners, the groundsmen, yeah, yeah, yeah. the chefs, and everything, and said, "We are all here together, and what you do is going to affect what you do is going to affect what you do." Mm. So we all need to understand that we're part of this union. And I think you can you can get caught up, especially when you're working in more egotistical environments with a hierarchy of, "Well, you can't know more than me, or you mm. you can't get as much support as me because." I'm paid more than you. Mm. And actually it's saying, well, we're all in this together. Yes, it's the interconnectedness of excellence uh, as a group. Um, and I think it's being part of something you perceive to be bigger than yourself. Um, and that becomes really interesting. And uh, we've, we've touched upon this several times so far, but we haven't said it um, explicitly. But we're dealing with intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. You know, at the end of the day, it wasn't the cups that the swimmers remember. It was the process and the, yeah. the coach, etc. And if you feel part of something that's bigger than yourself, that might drive you on to win things. But it's perhaps the intrinsic motivation that's the big driver. And we know from a lot of research that intrinsic motivation is the thing that keeps you involved. You know, extrinsic motivation doesn't doesn't always keep you driving forward and pushing on. I think it was the England women's hockey team or the Britain British team, I should say, for the Rio Olympics they had to cut their team down and I can't remember the exact stats I think it might have been say from 30 to 15 like it was a decent chunk of the squad got mm. let go say 16 weeks out when they actually selected their squad for the main event I can't remember the exact dates but how it worked out effectively was in the lead up to that they had had a change in the way that they worked culturally and actually said regardless of whether you're actually going to the games we are all part of this team and I think it was something to the effect of they let 15 of the team go in the lead up to Rio and 14 of them came back the next week to train and support the team through. Mm. And he said that was a mark of how far we had come in the fact that people actually treated their role in the preparation just as important as the delivery at the actual event. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd use a quote that I think comes from Rick Charlesworth's book that I recommended to you, World's Best. Um, I think he said, culture trumps strategy every time. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's what's really interesting is finding... Or not necessarily finding, because certainly in some of the grassroots clubs you're dealing with them as young children, so they're coming to your door regardless. But actually watching that development and fostering that development of people with that kind of mindset from mm. an early age, mm. because you're you're laying effectively the foundations, whether it's in sport or whether it's for their future careers in whatever it is, to have that kind of mindset of a level of selflessness and the bigger picture and those sorts of things is something that's hugely valued in today's society. Yeah. And it almost is something that I don't think we talk enough about when we're working with coaches. No, and it gives you, we've already alluded to it, but it gives your athletes this all-roundedness um, that promotes health and promotes better performance if their if they're broader life is happier. I think it's really interesting how when you talk about performance, it's as well seeing that people crave performance and maybe in previous generations we've had you know, a winning-at-all-cost mentality in certain yeah. sectors. And actually, people starting, or as a, as a as a nation, starting to wise up to the fact that, yep, we could throw everything at it and probably win, but are we going to win again and again and mm, again, and mm. is it sustainable? Mm. And I think those are the kind of things where when you get trapped in four-year funding cycles, which generally is what sport operates in in this country, it's chasing the next four years as opposed to actually saying where are we going to be in eight years time 12 years time because the the young people who are coming through the door at 10 11 12 their minds not necessarily on what they're going to be doing at university or postgrad but the things that they're getting exposed to in terms of the trait development and the skill development is going to dictate where they end up yeah i think we must become 
too outcome driven and we've, we've got to keep an eye on being process driven so, and the process itself will go beyond the targets and will be part of your underpinning values I suppose. It's fascinating as well the number of athletes that are now coming back in and effectively being mentors within their sport mm. because they've they've got that mindset of well actually my performance element from a competitive point of view is finished but I have a lot of useful you know, personality traits or knowledge or, or whatever it is that they bring to the table that I can actually still help support the team mm. and you see that quite a bit now across a number of sports which is wonderful to see and it's it's really interesting when those young athletes who are maybe 15, 16 getting on their first programme or team going oh, that's somebody I really looked up to and they're mm. now coming back and oh my god they've got arms and legs and they talk normally mm. as opposed to them having this like godlike status and uh, again it's a really nice trait for the, the young people to get exposed to to actually a level of humility and it doesn't matter how big the person is but they're actually just the same as them and that paying back may well be something that they end up doing in terms of paying back later most certainly right so moving forwards one of the things we noted when we talked beforehand was a need for authenticity mm -hmm. in terms of when you're working with with athletes and coaches so is that an area that we can just expand on a little bit yeah um it's nothing new um a long time ago shakespeare wrote to thine own self be true Thou canst then not be false to any man. Um, it's the idea about being true to your own beliefs, having some integrity and having some self-knowledge. Um, don't get me wrong, um, things change and we need to change and even our values may change over time. But values change slowly. Um, I think it's really important to be authentic to what, uh, to what you believe in. Um, there's a great chapter in a book called The Manager from... Um, might be might be the FA uh, but it's Brendan Rogers uh, and he talks about a time when he kind of was forced by circumstances to move away from what he believed in and it all went wrong um, and it it was a lesson that he says he took on in terms of being authentic to what he believed in that ends up with us thinking about how compatible are we with situations we find ourselves in sometimes we need to move on because we're not a good match uh, in terms of our authenticity for where we are. Um, so I think that's something that we need to be self-monitoring all the time. Who am I? What am I about? What are my values? How well do I match the project that I'm involved in? It's really interesting as well when you talk about authenticity in the sense of that athletes generally, maybe through a sense of naivety, are quite black and white in the terms of their interpretation of things. So mm -hmm. often you can spiel off whatever you want and claim this and claim that, but who you actually are as a day-to-day -day coach or manager is is often you're, you're quite exposed in front of a group of athletes when they see you maybe 10, 20 hours a week. They can be very aware of, well, he's saying this and he's doing that or she's mm. thinking this, but that's clearly not what we were told at the start of the season. So it kind of, I think it's it's interesting how maybe in a, a, a once-a-week kind of sport, it's a lot easier to have that kind of front but when, mm. you're, when you're not matched, people do kind of see through it after a, after a period of time. Yeah, you do need a front, but athletes will pick up if you're being inauthentic, I think. Um, and, and yes, I know sometimes we have to play a role and, uh, and sometimes we have to sweeten the pill. Um, but if, if athletes are seeing an inconsistency between me and the values I espouse in terms of my actions not matching those, I'd want a culture whereby they're pulling me up on that. Yeah. Um, because I want to be doing the same with them. I want to be saying, this is what you're telling me you're about and this is what your actions are showing. Now, I can't do that if I'm not modelling that myself. Um, 
and and I think you, you talked earlier about um, past coaching things being about win at all costs or maybe being authoritarian. I think I think we've obviously moved towards a more collaborative general framework of, of coaching relationships at a high performance level, uh, and I'd celebrate that generally. Uh, and I think if we're going to have those collaborative working arrangements, then there's got to be things like trust underpinning those and we don't get that if, if people are being inauthentic and there's a cost of being inauthentic as well I know <clears throat> I know we might talk about emotional labor later but you know if, if you're standing up being inauthentic there's a cost to your well-being we know from some of the research I think something that's um, is becoming more prominent now is that that understanding of know what you know but also know what you don't mm -hmm. uh, and be either relatively upfront about that or go on a journey in terms of your own development to make sure you're exposing yourselves into developing in those areas and I think there's there's that quite dangerous element of coming off a course as I'm sure most coaches do we, we're all young and we come in off we get a level two and a bit of paper and we go right ready to go I know about this that and everything else and it's actually almost the complete opposite the the further Certainly, I've moved down my coaching journey over the last 16 years. I've realised I know less and less and less and less. Mm -hmm. And all I actually get is just thrown even more threads to pull on, mm. as opposed to, oh, yeah, I already know about that. It's, um, that's something the world I've found myself in. Yeah, there was a, <clears throat> a coach on my um, doctoral research. He was a tennis coach. And I had a kind of graph of your perceived level of expertise and, and the years and what had happened to you and how it affected you. And he reinvented the the axes of the graph, so that there was a negative as well. Because he said, I, "I knew so little about coaching. I was I was I was a negative on the scale." And then he moved the graph along as his experience moved along. So he said, "Well, I was a six out of ten there, but then I learned that coaching could be so much more than that. So I was only six out of ten again, but I was still a little bit further on the journey." And it, I'd compare it to a conception of, uh, you know, the universe and a big bang. It's like the more he knows about coaching, the more he knows that he doesn't know. Yep. Uh, and there's a wonderful humility to that because that means that the learning never stops. He's progressing, but he's progressing and seeing more of the vision of what it, what it could be. Um, and that's a really nice way of promoting a kind of lifelong learning approach. It's really interesting, I think, over the, the last few years, certainly, when I've had the chance to go off and see a range of programmes with my, with my day job. And it's I've I found it's a really good way of connecting with coaches when they're actually talking about things and you go that's really interesting I've not come across of that I'm going to look more into it mm. and then when you almost loop back in a month when you see them or a couple of months time you go I've read a book on that or I've listened to that thing you told me about mm. really really interesting stuff and it's not just from your own development point of view they then almost come to you and you have a, a much more dynamic conversation because there is that um self-awareness of I don't know about that but I'd be really interested to know about it what do you think about it yeah, I think it's being open-minded and appreciative of, of questions being asked that, that can be a catalyst for your further learning rather than being defensive and trying to pretend that you know or, or feeling exposed that you don't know something. I've always been open with my athletes and my students in terms of, I don't know about that, but I'll go and find out about it or let's find out about it together. I think that's part of the process. It is, and I think in, in sport generally, the uh, I still don't think we actually map out that as well as we could to actually say, you know, maybe it's a hundred step plan and stage one and two is your level one and level two. Mm. Not once you've got your level two, off you go and coach kind of thing. Actually, we're just getting started. And I think that that's a, a culture I'm certainly looking to change going forwards because I think it's, it's quite a dangerous 
thought pattern to actually think I'm ready to go when actually you've got maybe eight hours of experience that you've got on your course mm. uh, and you're potentially in front of 20 or 30 athletes who you're not just responsible for their safety but you're actually shaping the way that their future careers and lives are going to go mm. so I think we've got that responsibility that maybe in other sectors so if you took a doctor for example the ongoing training that you have to do to, to stay above isn't something that necessarily permeates across the board in coaching yeah <clears throat> i think there's one thing i'd say about that which is there's a difference between someone conceiving of themselves as a never completed learner and being constrained to go and do some courses um and it's back to the ownership bit i'd want the people who are self-driven uh, and self-determined with their learning and curious um, because them going where they want to go is a lot different from someone pushing them towards you need to know this. Um, and again, that's a very subtle difference, but but it's the difference between promoting a culture of lifelong learning and, and having that attitude of I'm never finished as a learner. If we, if we do the thing of pushing them towards things, oh, well, I've done that. That's an end point achieved. Um, so it's a totally different message, I think. It's that mindset of do I have to do this or what's in it for me versus how can I find out more about this? Mm. And quite often the answer, certainly when I've had coaches come to me, is I'm, I can't answer that question. However, based on what you're telling me, this person will definitely be someone worth speaking to. And then that network grows of trust to actually say we're, we're a big group of 20 or 30 or 40 coaches and we all admit that we don't know everything, but we're all willing to help each other learn. Yeah. yeah. I think it was... Uh, UEFA licensing they did with their UEFA B there was such a big void in terms of uh, CPD between them finishing their UEFA B and going potentially on to do the UEFA A that they actually started setting up this small internal culture of things like WhatsApp groups and little visits in local area networks where they actually came off the course and went right we've got a big void here and actually as a group we're going to work collaboratively to fill it mm -hmm. and none of us have all got the answers but collectively we can really help each other yeah. and I thought that was a really nice community of practice to actually say that it's, it's informal mm -hmm. and it's very much um, non-certificated and not forced but because they were all in it together it really helped drive them forwards. Yeah absolutely um, I just think I would say to coaches and educators who want to keep developing themselves beware of some people out there and they're still out there they're out there at university level as well some people want to tell everybody what to do i know what's best for you um and i'd really beware of that i mean that might be true certain times but we need others who focus more on what the learner's particular needs are and how they can empower themselves such as the group that you, you've just discussed um i think that that's true education and learning for me the other thing's just being directed uh, every time you direct someone, you disempower them. And, you know, we talked about values earlier. Part of my values, the first line of them is, uh, first, do not disempower. You know, so I, I'm always looking that I don't want to do harm by taking away the opportunity for someone to make their own decision or to take their own ownership. Do you think, <coughs> um, looking back, that some of that isn't in place by design, it's actually effectively there because of tradition and actually seeing people... In a, say a coaching environment I coach like that because that's how I was coached mm. and not necessarily that's where the times are going and certainly with this I guess technological curve we seem to be on over the last 10-15 years mm. it's not even looking at where we are now it's actually saying what does the athlete 
that's going to be performing in maybe eight years' time need to look like because mm. if I'm coaching how they are now, by the time we get to eight years' time, they're going to be eight years out of date. And actually having that foresight and looking at sports or businesses that are ahead of the curve instead of actually saying, I'm delivering it because I read it in a book that's maybe 20 years out of date and it needs modifying or tweaking or updating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the parallel with higher education is you've got a curriculum you know, a three-year curriculum that, that's going to prepare someone for the world of work in three and a half years. Well, the world of work in three and a half years is probably going to be something you don't know yet. So what's more important is not specific things on the curriculum, but qualities that you can help to instill in people, such as reflective practice, such as introspection, you know, such as um, taking ownership of their own learning, learning to learn. Those things are going to be the things that help them cope with the unpredictability and the change, that, the things that we don't even know are there yet. Um, if we falsely set, send them through a curriculum that gives them the confidence that they know everything by the end of it, they will see it as an end point and they won't be as adaptable when they move into the, the world of work. I'm pulling back to coaches again. For me, if there's one quality that I would say that coaches need, it's to be adaptable. That is the primary quality for me. I've seen the, the term chameleon banded around a number of times yeah. in yeah. in sports coaching events. What's really interesting, picking up on that last point, one of the things I've done or really pushed forwards is this link with universities. Yep. Just in my area, we've got 14 university campuses, probably at least maybe 10 of them deliver some form of sport or sports coaching courses mm -hmm. and actually working with the people who are delivering those courses in terms of how applicable is the content we're delivering for what the working world looks like. And I had a meeting maybe about eight weeks ago uh, at a university, I won't say which one, <laughs> but it was very forward thinking of them. They had actually launched a new course and they brought in about six different people who work across the coaching and development sectors to actually sit down and effectively not rip it to pieces, but actually say in terms of the finer details on this content, this is what we would recommend. This is what we're finding with our current employees or people that we work with in our network are lacking. Yeah. And it was really interesting to actually hear a university turning around and saying, what are you guys looking for now? And what are you going to need in the future to make sure that what they were delivering on their courses now is actually preparing people better for the world they're going into? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there's a lot of lip service to critical thinking, but if we don't model critical thinking by bringing in people and encouraging that sort of thought, then, then we can't really instill it in our students. So I would support that sort of critical thinking and that sort of exercise of bridging the gap between theory and practice. We've got to be bringing in examples from the real world to bring it alive, to problematise it. In other words, bring in the real problems, not what the textbook 20 years ago says. Yep. Um, and therefore to kind of facilitate a bridge for the, the students between theory and practice. One of the things that we talk more of, I guess, tradition, not necessarily marrying up to the sporting world we're working in now, was the area of emotional intelligence, mm. uh, emotional labour, emotional management. Mm -hmm. And I guess just want to really pick up on a few of your experiences that you've had and where you see us going in, the, in that area. Yeah, Um well, I, th I think we discussed this when, when we had a meeting before, but um, I went to an amateur football match recently. I've got a little bit of time on my hands, so I'm doing some unusual things. Uh, and I sat by the dugouts, as I would, <laughs> and been interested in coaching. Um, and the contrast between the two dugouts was, was particularly interesting in terms of emotional management. Um, one team, a lot higher up in the league, in fact, winning the league, um, playing a lower league side coached by one of my ex-students team that are supposed to win at the top of the league 
their manager was very emotionally volatile, very unstable, berating his players, swearing at his players, um, calling them effing idiots kind of thing at its worst. Um, and I noticed, and I guess it's not surprising, but that his team mirrored his emotional management. They had more problems with a referee. They had more problems rowing with each other. The other team, on paper, a lot lower in the league, outperformed themselves, didn't argue amongst themselves. Uh, they ended up losing the game in, uh, late on. But um, there was a moment when, and bear in mind, you know, they're, they're lower league, the, the, the others are at the top. There was a moment when the visitors scored, uh, coached by my ex-student, and it was disallowed. And straight away, he turned to the other end of the pitch and said to the defenders, cover. Right. Getting them to think about covering for, for the team coming out. Now, I knew if the same thing had happened to the other bench, the other guy is not even thinking about cover. He's focused on the disallowed goal and the injustice. And I knew that it would be different. So I think emotional management's an interesting area. I think it goes back to some of your comments about tradition earlier. You know, what, what do people expect me to do as a coach? The crowd probably, you know, are the crowd expecting me to argue with a referee and and be aggressive with the players? Um, whereas, you know, is that my job or am I there to support what the players need emotionally in the moment? Which might be, get over that disallowed goal. We need to think about the defence. Take your take your thoughts to there. Um, both teams, by the way, I, I said to you that I said to the, the coach afterwards when I met him, my ex student that both teams there was too much direction uh, rather than the players directing themselves but there was certainly more emotional stability on one bench than there was on the other bench and I think that comes down to something that I would call emotional awareness you know being aware of your own emotions and reacting emotionally in the moment in ways that our athletes need not in ways that we perceive people would like to see us reacting yeah. You know, the expectations of fans or the expectations of other coaches. Is that okay? Yeah, that's really, really interesting. It's it's an area, certainly, I think, going forwards, and I'm only talking necessarily from my world of swimming, but there's many sports that are actually honing in more on these arena skills, if we want to call it that, mm. the, the going out in, onto the field or, or, or whatever sport it is you're in, or even, to be honest, in the, in the business front. Everything takes place behind the scenes, and once we're out there and we're doing what we're there to do, we need to be in control. Mm. And... If you look, if we go back to, say, the London Olympics as a prime example, there were certainly athletes that had the fight-or-flight response mm. and were not prepared to walk out in front of 20, 30, 40,000 people and deliver something they were very technologically capable of delivering, mm. sorry, technically capable of delivering, but they emotionally could not manage that situation. I think that's something that it seems to be going across a range of sports at the moment, but actually uh, training of coaches to educate both themselves and their athletes around the, how important that is. Yeah, I mean, I think we haven't looked at emotions uh, in coaching in terms of literature until fairly recently. And I remember another ex-student of mine, Lee Nelson, I think, wrote that um, coaching has been, or writing about coaching has been emotionally anorexic, which is a nice phrase. You know, we, we've been thin on the ground in looking at what it is, how we can train it, how we can manage it. But there's been some really interesting research recently. I had a master's student recently been looking at this. It's a fascinating area. Uh, that's Connor Darrington Murphy. He was helping uh, some FA coaches um, with emotional labor issues, emotional management through training, coach interventions. 
uh, education interventions. And they seemed to find it really useful in terms of raising their awareness. And it seemed to have changed in a pretty short period of time um, how they were managing their emotions in practice, uh, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and that might be a way forward. What <clears throat> what I find also really interesting was that the, the notion of um, emotions playing such a big role in, in many aspects of life, is, that is not something that's new in any way, shape or form. And maybe about five years ago, I was on a course and they were talking about the decision to buy in terms of consumers. So it's more from a business world, but buy-in could be just as, as important if you're working with a group of athletes. Mm. It was 84% based on emotion right. and not rational. Yeah. And for the, it, then I kind of came away from that and went onto deck and thought, if the kids don't necessarily emotionally buy into what I'm doing, it doesn't matter whether it's the best thing I've ever thought up in the world the first thing we've got to do is actually engage with them on a level where they think I want to do this and then yeah. almost at that point going forwards everything else takes care of itself yeah and it's interesting that other coaches would think that I need to take emotion completely out of this I, I need to have control I need to be rational etc but as you say that might not be the thing that creates buy-in um, we talked about Klopp earlier you know I think I think there's a lot of emotional engagement in, in Klopp's coaching style and in the culture that he tries to create uh, including with the fans and the, and the broader base. It helps navigate the, the, the highs and lows much better as well because when, not necessarily from a, an emotional point that they feel like they're completely connected with you, but when for an athlete or a team it's not going so well, the fact they have that link with you and they generally believe you are invested in them on that journey, mm. you're much more likely to get them working with you to ride out the lows as you are to, to celebrate the highs. And I think too often it can be very easy to suddenly, they say they've lost the dressing room. Mm. And they go, well, because they're not necessarily feel like that person's in it with them. Yeah, have they got their best interests at heart? Now, obviously there's tensions there. You know, you you may be selecting players. Um, there's a famous example of Rick Charlesworth who, who dropped his son from the London Olympics and the hockey team, you know. Um, but... You know, he, he. I remember an interview with him, and he said, "You know, I hope that he understands that I'm doing it for the right reasons, and I'm doing it in the right way." Um, so, for the athletes to know that your coach is emotionally invested in you, but to know that that coach has some emotional control as well, I think it, it becomes a bond. It does, and I think some more traditionally, um, and I think more more in the years when I've been coaching, we've moved away from that you can't show emotion, you shouldn't have any form of emotional connection with your mm. athletes. And yet, when you look outside of that in the more wider business world, you hear the phrase all the time of people, I can't remember what it is, it's people don't know, want to know what you oh. know until they know how much you care or something to that effect. Uh, people don't People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Exactly. It was it. originally a swimming coach educator, believe it or not, a guy called Forbes Carlyle in Australia. Australia, yeah. yeah. But that's what, he was around in the fifties. Yeah. So this isn't like groundbreakingly. Oh, where, where's this come from? This has been around for a long time, and I yeah. think it's actually now becoming commonplace that actually that is a massive contributor to how well things go. But also in terms of sustainability, if we do have a dip, the ability for us to bounce back is that's a huge part of it. Mm. Yeah, it's going to create some sort of resilience, isn't it? I guess we need to say that. This is not universal. Some athletes don't want a close emotional relationship with their um, coaches. Um, I think there's a thing in teaching at the moment where people are, are criticising that, that phrase that we used and saying, well, it doesn't always have to be that way. Yeah. 
Uh, and I guess you can think about examples in sport. Was it Andy Cole and uh, who was the other striker of a Man United? Dwight York. Dwight York. They apparently hated each other off the pitch, but you know performed very well on it. Yeah. Um, so, but again, I would say that's an example of emotional management, isn't it? Because they're parking it yep. on the side uh, when they cross the line. And I think that's when you look at, especially at major events where a game goes badly or say a swimming competition when on day one it doesn't go well and both the coach and the athlete have that capacity to turn around and go, done, book closed, on to the next thing. Yeah. And I can't remember which American football coach it was, but he talked about playing the next play. Yeah, playing it one play at a time. And that's that's the mindset of to have to go, you cannot you can scream, shout, cry, laugh, you cannot change what's happened. But every second from here on in, you're affecting what will happen. Yeah. Um Arsene Wenger famously said that being a top football manager is about surviving disappointments. <laughs> yeah, so um getting over your disappointments quickly in the moment is gonna be really important. I, I was absolutely hopeless at cricket, would have liked to have been good at it. But my best ever innings was an innings where I literally was saying to myself over and over again just play this ball you know and 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 that sucks you into the moment and then you've got a better chance of performing unencumbered by how badly you played before or how disappointed you were with something or how overexcited you got one of the things i guess that kind of spawned the podcast was actually finding people who um, have pushed on or passed adversity or when things haven't gone their way have still mm-hmm. carried on and the number of interviews I've heard of Marathon being a perfect example of people hitting the wall and, mm-hmm. and not thinking I'm not going to make it to 26 miles they go I'm going to make it to mile 18 and then at mile 18 they go I'm going to make it to mile 19 and yeah. that was how they got through yeah. and I think so many athletes regardless of what sport you're in or even in business it's not looking good for 12 months time but let's worry about what's going to happen this week and then mm. the week after we're going to look at the next week and so on and so forth yeah I think there's a culture of work that comes into that as well there, there was an audio cassette that I used to use so it's a bit old of um, two rowers I think one of them was Matthew Pinson and they were in two world um, finals a few hours apart so I used it as an exercise to help students think about well, how would you help them recover from one to the other but they won the first one did their recoveries got in the second one they're winning the second one and then they hook a boy and it pulls them back it's kind of two-thirds of a boat or something uh, and Pinson says that in that moment he thought oh well that's it we've lost it and in the next minute, his second thought that pops in his head is, well, if, we're, if we've lost it, we've done all that training, all that hard work, all that recovery work, we're going to lose it by the smallest possible margin we're going to lose it then. We're going to make them work as hard as they can for that victory we should have had. And they ended up actually overtaking and winning by like the size of half a matchbox or something. Yeah. But the interesting thing about that story for me is that the resilience it gives you, even when you think you can't win or it's over, you're, you're in such a, a culture of being engaged in trying to be the best you can be that you're not going to let them have it easy. That would be, um, most recently, last week, the Super Bowl. Yeah. That was when you looked at the highlights of it and looked at the result and you went, that's one of those moments where they've got to the third quarter and when we have fought all season to get here under yep. no circumstances are we going down without a fight. Yep. And that's... there's um, there was a book, no, I think it was a journal that I was reading um, that was done on a research study around serial winners and it talked about there's a general split in the athletic mindset of people who love to win and people who hate to lose yeah. and serial winners generally come from the hate to lose yeah. mindset because on the ones where it was push comes to shove, you're going to get it, they get it yeah. versus I like being out in front, that's nice. 
And it, again, it was just something that you can then look back on your own coaching career or you know, from an academic point of view, working with athletes or students or in business and actually go, you could see that can't stand to lose or can't stand for things to go wrong and will do anything they can possible, including work as hard as possible to get that result. Yeah, and I think it's also about in that moment, think if you've got a culture of being the best you can be, in that moment, you don't give up. Yeah. You're the best you can be, even if you're the best you can be the second. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the team events that I was watching last year, and it talked about how if you're going to come fourth, try and push for third. If you're going to come third, push for second, because at the end, those extra one or two points over 50 events add up to a massive difference. Mm. And ironically, right at the end, this was a, um, a league team swimming event that was taking place in Las Vegas, of all places. And it came down to the last couple of events. Mm. And that was that mindset of, we're not quite where we want to be, but we're going to fight for every single point because we know at the end it's going to come down to the line. And then that kind of upwards curve of momentum took them over the line at the end. I think I heard something similar from, there's a, there's a swimmer called Missy Franklin. Yeah. Uh, um, and she talked about similar things in a podcast that I listened to recently. I think it's um, uh, Finding Mastery. And that same attitude of, what am I going to do to be the best I can be? And she said she's not even worried about the opponents. It's it, If I'm getting as close as I can to the best I can be, yep. then that, that's what I'm controlling. And that's something that when you're looking at, I guess, working in, in my role in talent development, that's what I'm looking for. It's looking for... I remember watching an athlete get out of a competition a couple of years ago up in Manchester, and it was it was pretty good relatively for his age, and it would have probably placed top three in Britain um, for his age at the time. And... Um, I wasn't actually coaching him, but I'd worked with him when he was younger and he, he had a very, very good mindset. And he came up to me and went, only 10 seconds to go to break the world record. <laughs> and I was blown away by just, it was a very much an off-the-cuff comment, but it was the the way he said it, you thought, that kid, that's how he judges himself of, that was good, but I yeah. think I can do better. I'm constantly just trying to go that little bit further each time and also being mindful of the bigger picture. And it's not an overnight success kind of thing. This will take a long time. That's an internalised way of being, a disposition to, to, to improving and pushing on. Yeah, Really, really interesting. Well, we talked there about a few of the dips um, and um, fear of failure was something I know we mentioned beforehand. Yeah. Is yeah. that something in your experience that you've seen people be- or certainly in the modern day, becoming more comfortable with failure or in a, in a society we're in now of actually fear of failure well, stopping you doing things? It's obviously a subjective uh, assessment, but I think people are more fearful of failure generally. Uh, they're more fearful of failure, in my opinion, because we don't allow people to fail sometimes or we try and set up systems where they can't fail. Um, you know, thinking about school league tables or university league tables, you know, and they don't want people to fail. But the trouble is, they're deprived of learning when they can't fail because that might be the most valuable learning experience. Um, you know, I'm sure I haven't convinced many students, but I say sometimes, you know, that this poor grade might be the most important learning experience you've got on the catalyst. Um, so I think people end up, if we have a kind of cotton wool culture, then people become risk aversive. Uh, and if I make a parallel, um, I know someone who lives in around this area, which is quite rural and quite safe. And they don't let their kid go to the park on his own because they're worried about him kind of, you know, getting bullied or whatever might happen. Um, it's a fairly safe environment, but by wrapping him up in cotton wool, what, what does he lose from not going down the park? Um, and you know, I might, I might be off the mark here. But I've got a suspicion that we don't let kids go out and get involved in the dirt as much as when I was a kid, and we used to go out and play in the dirt. 
Now, there's a lot of people with uh, allergies and stuff like that, and I'm pretty sure it might be that they don't get exposed to being outdoors all the time. And Antibacterial spray everywhere and yeah, that kind of thing. So I, I might be wrong on that, and I'm sure people will bring the science in and tell me, but, but it's an example of if we sterilise the environment, literally, we don't get people kind of alter, uh, growing as much as they might, uh, experiencing as much as they might, you know, athletics coaches tell me that people are not as resilient to injury because they haven't had the movement education of being outside a lot of the time yep. and, and having multiple sports. So, so that sort of thing about exposing yourself ostensibly to risk, but risk being a catalyst for growth and development. Um, yeah. it's um, I'm just thinking of a couple of um, things that jump out at me. Michael Jordan's got that very famous quote yeah. that's something to the effect of... <clears throat> I've missed 9,000 game deciding free yeah. throws and all that sort of stuff. I've failed over and over again, and that's why I succeed. And then I'm thinking of an example from a Commonwealth Games. I won't say which athlete it was, but there was an athlete who got beaten in an event they were expecting to win. And immediately, the BBC interview that came out afterwards, they said, I've learned so, so much from this. Mm. And you were just like, what a wonderful message for people who have often held a winners up on a pedestal and actually go, oh my God, they didn't win. But then they're coming out and saying, yeah, but that was really important because I learned a huge amount from it, which is really, really good. Yeah. Um, I was just trying to see a book I've got on the shelf over there, which is, I think it's called Win or Learn. Uh, I think it's John Kavanagh, and I think it was Conor McGregor's coach, or, okay. or maybe still is. I love the attitude of win or learn. Uh, and it, so fail doesn't even come into it. Now, he's really high stakes. You know, fail, failure is a big high stakes, isn't it, in, in MMA? Yes. Um, but that attitude of I'm going to learn from things, it, it really flips the the kind of way of thinking. And it helps us to optimise. So if we, if we flip round from fear of failure for a minute to how could we do that better, then I think the message I would say is that we need to become comfortable with failure. Um, now that, that seems strange to people but several times in my research and in my thinking I've come up with a phrase that that we need to become comfortable being uncomfortable and you know what the coaches in my research have told uh, told me that in terms of their own learning so in order to be comfortable being uncomfortable we need to work with fear I suppose and manage it uh, and not be risk averse and then we can work at the edge of our capabilities and, and we know that's where people truly flourish and grow so um, nice quote from um, athletics coach Percy Serity you only really grow as a human being when you're outside your comfort zone you're not going to get outside your comfort zone if you've got a fear of failure or you're risk averse so are you going to optimally develop I think <clears throat> as well when you're talking about that if we think of it as an infographic you have those kind of the, the rings, the, the ring inside the ring inside the mm, ring, and mm. the, the one in the middle saying safe zone, and then the one saying slightly uncomfortable, and the mm. next one even more uncomfortable, mm. and then that kind of arrow between the two saying this is where you learn. Yeah. And I think if you look at most sports, just by their very nature in terms of metrics, there's a win and lose, or there's a first and second and third, fourth, fifth, sixth, et cetera, et cetera. So the opportunities are already there at a bare minimum 50% of the time, and in some cases a lot more than that, where people can actually come away. And if we take swimming as an example, and there's eight people in a final, seven out of eight people certainly have got a prime opportunity to go away and learn. And if the, the winner is mindful enough as well, and they've got that correct mindset, they touch the wall and actually go, that was good, but how can I do it better? Mm. And I think that was something Phelps used to do. He would get out almost angry after a race, and they go, you've just won a gold and broke a world record. And he <laughs> said, yeah, but I didn't spot the wall properly, or whatever it was. 
and that constant refining mindset. Yeah, back to Arsene Wenger again. I think he said in a, a nice video interview I've got with him uh, that the top athletes are always dissatisfied. There's always a, an element of dissatisfaction. I mean, let's go back to mental health again and think if you're always dissatisfied, what sort of miserable <laughs> life do you have? Um, but I know <clears throat> Wenger himself was was very dissatisfied with things and, and wanted to push things on. But top people have a dissatisfaction. They're not satisfied. They're not going to rest on their laurels. They're still going to try and perform at the edge of their capabilities. I remember Mel Marshall after she got PT to gold in 2016. People said, well, what now? Mm. You've climbed Everest. And she said, yeah, but now I want to climb it better. And I remember that. <laughs> I really, really like that <coughs> quote because it's something that, again, anyone who's got some form of sporting background, regardless of what performance level you got to, if you're competitively driven, that's what you do, even when you achieve what you want to achieve. Yeah. But I want to do it again and I want to do it better. Yeah, well, it is competitiveness, isn't it? It's uh, Pete Carroll's phrase, always compete. Yeah. But it's always competing with yourself. It doesn't mean you're always competing to win at all costs. It's always competing with you. I talked a little bit there about the... Uh, the, the positions mentality of like win or lose or first through to eight uh, and the data driven world that we're mm. going into mm. and I think that's a really interesting area to kind of pick apart a little bit and actually talking about how you know you watch Sky Sports News now and it's effectively like a maths lesson yeah. you know who's got this win win ratio all of those sorts of things and it's actually like when you ask an athlete certainly a young athlete why do you do sport very rarely does a number come into it yeah, uh, the numbers are obviously very useful. They're very powerful. I know um, that Klopp, again, is using some big analytics there. I don't know whether that came in that book you read, but um, that's been coming up recently. But um, to go back to Einstein's famous quote, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. So we need to balance that up, the power of those numbers, with the intangibles that are really important. You know, the coach that's got the sense of humour that we tap into or the athlete that's atypical, that's the maverick. Um, so numbers don't account for human uniqueness and don't account for some of those those intangibles. The numbers are really useful though to reinforce. You know, if you've, for instance, a, a great intangible for coaches is your gut instinct. If you've got plenty of experience, you should be drawing upon that gut instinct. Numbers can help you reinforce or check that gut instinct. You can have kind of a feedback loop. Well, why do I think that? Does that match up with the figures? Yeah, uh, and that stops us getting into the area of hubris, uh, which is an interesting one for me. Um, I went and watched Dr. David Owen giving a talk last week. He came up with hubris syndrome many years back. He was a neuroscientist before he was a politician, and um, hubris syndrome is when we get carried away with our own myth. Now, uh, he classically looked at. Tony Blair in the third term, Margaret Thatcher in the third term, unbridled power over yep. a period of time. But I think the same is potentially true of coaches. You know, if you've been winning for nine, ten years, you can get carried away with your own ego, your own myth. Might have happened to Mourinho to an extent uh, at some point. Now, we need to think then about how do we protect ourselves from, from hubris syndrome? The numbers might be one thing. Does that back up what I'm thinking? Um, Having good people around you can be another thing. Having trusted advisors, talking things through with your family. Um, so again, I guess we're back to that all-roundedness, big picture bit. And you're less likely to become your own egotistical tyrant who's uh, making poor decisions due to a kind of mental health issue of hubris rather than being a balanced person who's got a bigger perspective on things. That um, One of the guests we had on previously, Wayne, he talked about a kind of... I don't think we actually had it on the podcast, but it was something we discussed was this kind of curve 
um, that kind of tapered off and actually saying that when you're learning and developing as a young coach you generally have quite a good upwards return in your results because yeah. when you first start you you know you're taking everything and everyone's excited and all that yeah. sort of stuff and it was talking about the danger zone when you start that curve starts getting ready to flatten off mm. before you tip and drop down and where you effectively go I'm really good and this is working and there's nothing that's going to improve this and that yeah. sort of mindset yeah well that's keeping the humility of I'm not the finished article and I'm always learning yeah no very very interesting stuff there was one more thing I really wanted to delve into and that was your doctorate oh yeah okay um, so we talked about it a little bit. Um, I was essentially um, researching the developmental journey of expert coaches. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that because I was looking at their self-perceptions of how uh, their expertise fluctuates, you know, how, how expert do they feel. Uh, I guess I need to underpin this by saying at the start that I don't believe there's any such thing as the expert coach. I think as soon as you think you're an expert coach, you're falling away from that humility we talked about again. Uh, as soon as you think you're the finished article, you, the world's changing around you and, and you're becoming outdated. Um, so I looked at four coaches in a lot of detail, got them to write their life history, um, followed them for two years, multiple interviews, uh, tried to map the critical incidents in their long-term developmental journeys. We haven't got a lot of research on the long-term developmental journeys of expert coaches. Um, I'll call them expert at the moment. I'll call them expert-like in the in the in the research. I know some people hate that term, so I'll leave it for now. Um, I also got them to write a future-facing life history. Where did they think they were going? Um, the things that I got out of that, it was it was really interesting to get these rich narratives of the journey, and it's always inspiring. I think you can always take something I think from other people's journeys to map onto your own practical wisdom and map onto your own experiences or think I'd like to try that or that's not what I'd do um, but the, the stories were rich but the stories also gave us uh, some insights into the development of coaching expertise I think I know you're into your surfing so I thought you'd like this which is what, what I said we should talk about so I came up with a model called surfing the turbulence and I'm basically saying that on your developmental journey as a coach you're inevitably going to encounter turbulence problems to be uh, got over um, opportunities that, that come up critical encounters with people things that go wrong um, it's how you react to that turbulence I think that determines whether you go on this expert journey or how far you go so if I encounter something that's a, ostensibly a negative piece of turbulence that's going to try and throw me off the surfboard if I can stay on the board and see it as an opportunity to learn then I can perhaps even catapult forward with it if I can Find an interesting person that helps me learn further. Perhaps that's akin to riding a wave or catching a wave. Um, I'm looking at you as the surfer to see whether that's about it's, right. What, <laughs> what, what's really, really interesting is that you <laughs> don't want to delve too much into surfing because I'll get carried away. Yeah. But when you surf a massive point break wave, you have what, a very long line that you can see a long way ahead of you. Yeah. And occasionally the sections of the various parts of the wave don't link up because of the, the, the nature of the swell. And what you'll actually have is a surfer going along the wave. They look a long way down the line and see that there's a flat spot, they call it, coming up. Yeah. And they adjust their position on the wave and almost fight their way through it so right. that they can then get to the next bit. And what a wonderful metaphor to kind of pull that together. So back towards carving out your own journey and yeah. I might end up there. Uh, one of the interesting things with, with the research as well was that when people are constantly at the edge of their capabilities in terms of that discomfort zone, 
rather than the trauma zone, I would call the other one. Yeah. Um, if you play on the edge of your capabilities, for me, a really interesting thing is you may end up in a completely different area of expertise entirely. Now, I know there's a lot of people who, who think it's absolute rubbish about transferability of expertise, and I, to a large extent, I agree with them. But um, my coaches, I was finding, you know, you'd get someone who was coaching high-performance athletes who suddenly ended up drifting towards inspirational speaking. Uh, you'd get somebody who was strength and condition, uh, sorry, athletics coaching, who, because of their interest in how to support their their throw athlete throw, throw throws athletes in athletics with strength and conditioning, suddenly became more of a strength and conditioner. Um, somebody else was educating coaches as well as educating themselves, and ended up being more of an, a coach manager. So people almost kind of break through into another area because they're used to pushing the boundaries. Now this is this is maybe a bit of a trite example, but I had a friend who, who used to fight for England karate. And he took up playing the drums because it would help with coordination, of, he thought, with arms and legs at the same time. Good idea. Fell in love with drumming so much, he gives up karate and joins a band. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it's just an interesting thing about this, this idea about uh, if I'm trying to be the best I can be, I might end up being the best I can be at something else. Um, I was going to say there was one story that really jumps out at me. So British icon Jess Ennis um, in 2008 uh, had some breaks in her foot stress fractures I think they were and um, she had to do a lot of static bike work and her training partner was a girl called Katie Marchant who was on the bike as well and they were Watt bikes which if you've ever been on one and I'm sure our listeners can appreciate it they're horrible and um, her coach Tony was looking at the, the readout on Katie's bike and said wow that's impressive rang up British Cycling and she got a medal I believe at London Olympics in cycling now that was not on the planned journey or anything like that but it was just i love the kind of transfer of not just from from an athlete's point of view but career path to career path that you hadn't in no way planned to occur but Mm. it it just it just fell into place yeah so so just returning to the some of the lessons from the, the doctorate that will tie into that um one of the things is that the game is always changing you know in terms of coaching um and you have to develop a kind of feel for the game. That's that's a phrase or a metaphor borrowed from Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist. Um, that feel for the game allows you to adapt proactively to opportunities that come up, or what was it, a fl- or a flat part of the sea yeah. that I might see in front of me. Um, and it drives you on as well. It's the driving force, back to that intrinsic bit. You end up with what I termed, again, borrowing from some of Bourdieu's concepts, a developmental habitus, meaning um, deliberately moving out of your comfort zone with a way of being in regards to your own self-development. You know, so you're constantly, which I know you are, you're constantly looking to network uh, and meet other people who might be useful. And every time I write a book down, I can see you writing that, you, you know, you might go and buy that book. Um, so a disposition that constantly promotes further growth. Now, if you've got that, that's really powerful for ongoing development. Um, and you're going to be resilient to, to the times when you're finding things difficult it's really i guess kind of pulling that together is that like we've already mentioned a few times there the the irony of investigating what would be considered expert like coaches was that they had a mindset that was i'm not an expert yeah they, they didn't consider themselves to be the finished article um and i had a quote at the start of mine i won't be able to do it totally but it's from a book by uh, uh, a quote from Tolstoy, I think it was, and Tolstoy said, "The moment you think that you've achieved, you know, the zenith, you're falling away from it." Uh, and 
and that was reflected in in what I found with them. These coaches were on an ongoing process of becoming. They never felt they'd they'd actually become the end product. They were just in a process of becoming. And as soon as you start accepting that, then you're more open to adaptation and opportunities to adapt. And you might even see challenges as opportunities. I think that's a really nice way to kind of pull this together to kind of actually say as a message to our coaches out there, regardless of whether it's year one and you've just come off your your level one course or whether you're you've maybe been in it quite a few years, mm-hmm. is to actually say in your mind, I'm still just getting started. Mm. Um, there was a nice article, we, we didn't talk about it before, but I thought about it afterwards, by somebody called Standal, uh, I think it's somewhere in Scandinavia, 2009. I think it was called Celebrating the Insecure Practi- Practitioner. It, it was in the context of adapted physical education, people with disabilities. Um, but I really liked Standal's message uh, in that, which is that we need an openness to engage in constant learning and revised self-understanding in order to better cope with unpredictability. Now, what we're saying is that coaching is never totally knowable. It's relatively controllable, but only relatively. And if you accept that, how do you deal with the unpredictability? Um, And what he was saying about um, these practitioners was that they were making subtle judgments in this field, in the moment, based on some universal truths like science and things, um, or evidence-based aspects, but also based on their on their appreciation of what the contextual situation needed at the time. Those judgments in the moment, and those judgments were not only as a basis of having been immersed in similar situations for so long. There was also a moral element to that. What would be the right thing to do? in these circumstances uh, and that becomes really interesting one thing that i guess from a, a metaphor for that was was something i was actually chatting about with a few coaches the other week was this analogy of a game of guess who mm-hmm. and the more you learn and the more you develop the more faces pop up and the ability you've actually got in any given situation to look at that board of faces and experience and go that's who i need to be right now mm-hmm. and actually draw upon that and the less you learn and the less you try and develop the more limited that range of stuff that you can draw upon is okay yeah i think somebody also um, talked about your own coaching history as being a rich resource now the more cases you encounter for me every athlete is a unique challenge and every context is a unique challenge but every case you encounter gives you a, a richer bank of cases to draw back on um, now obviously there's the danger of things like stereotypes and all they might be like that athlete I had before and you can fall into that trap but it gives you a bank of things to draw upon that you could try um, and I think a lot of the time we are taking calculated risks in coaching you know it's not a precise science um, some of it is but not all of it is um, so therefore we need to take calculated risks we need to draw upon our experience but we also need to think about what haven't I tried that's I think the beauty of sport if if we think of a way of actually summarising that as, as one thing, is that there is an unknown. And yeah. that, that's what, you know, otherwise it would just be a, a dead certainty, which there wouldn't be that wonder of sport, whether you're a young athlete or whether it's, you know, the Olympic Games. Mm. That, that wonder of they should win, but they might not. Mm. Uh, and how do, we, how do we navigate that and how do we learn and develop? And that, that element of chance, if you want to call it that, but the unknown is something that what, is what makes sport, whether you're in it as an athlete, coach, developer, whatever it is, so exciting because we don't know. And enjoyable, yes. That's, that's the joy of it. it. 
maybe the joy of it is you can't ever know it totally. Um, thinking about Rick Charlesworth's book again, World's Best, and I think he wrote in there that at an Olympics, I think he said something like, only one out of four Olympic champions or Olympic record holders ends up winning the, the gold. You know, so Charlesworth's book is absolutely brilliant on being diligent in your, your process, you know, and very rigorous, leaving no stone unturned. But it still doesn't mean it's going to happen for you in the moment. Uh, and it's still only relatively controllable. And it can slip away from your hands. But what I like about he's for the people who are listening to this and getting really fearful and going, oh God, I can't control everything. He said for his team to be scored against, I think he said four or five people need to make a mistake consecutively. You know, so if, we, if we're covering all the bases and, and we've got a culture of accepting that things are going to go wrong one or two, uh, as long as it's not three or four or five, we shouldn't concede or we shouldn't go down a, a dark path, I guess. That's one of the things Bowman talked about in, in his work and certainly reflectively now Phelps has retired and talked about actually creating an athlete that could deal with a very abnormal environment but produced normal and repeatable results mm. and effectively made world-class a benchmark that he could repeat again and again so mm. that in that cauldron uh, with so many things going on that he could actually pull back and go, I know he's going to deliver that because we've rehearsed it so many times and I'm confident in his ability and my ability to deliver on the day when it matters. Mm. Oh, that's the biggest challenge of coaching. One of the biggest challenges is, you know, can my athlete produce under pressure in the moment? And it gets bigger than that. Can my athlete produce under pressure in the moment when things go wrong as well? <laughs> well, especially when you're talking about multi-eventers or a game that's split up into three three sections or you know halves or whatever sport it is you're looking and actually going, it's not over till it's over. Yeah, but again, if we as coaches don't model how to deal well with adversity uh, and, and how to work well under pressure ourselves, for instance, going back to the lack of emotional management, then we're not modelling what the athletes need to build for their qualities as well and their best performance well I, I think there's a lot for everyone to take away there um, I will in the, the, the post recording put David's contact on Twitter yep. so if people have got questions or they want to get in touch and feedback I think based on the range of experiences you've got this won't be the first episode we do I think okay, at some great. point we'll revisit great. but um, please do get in touch because we, we really like hearing the feedback and I have no doubt David would happily engage with anyone who's got any questions yeah that'd be lovely and uh, it perhaps might be nice to end with a quote from John Wooden I usually do that I know my ex-students will be laughing because always, he always came into lectures Wooden said, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts, which draws together a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. David, thank you very much for your time. No problem, thank you. A fascinating discussion there with David. I really hope you took a lot away from that. Just a few things that jumped out for me as we moved through and some questions for you to take away. The notion of caring. How do you engage with those that you work with? Are they seeing emotional buy-in? Empowerment. Does our style of working within our team empower or disempower people? Periodization, recovery and rest. We spend a lot of time on this if you're a coach, but mainly for others and not ourselves. So perhaps something for you to consider as you move through your seasons. Intrinsic motivation to learn. Who is driving your education journey and is it coming from within? Failure. Challenges around failure and the fear of failure in modern society. Is this holding people back in all walks of life? What are you doing to make yourself more comfortable with being uncomfortable? Expertise. 
anyone in any profession treating themselves as the unfinished article is a hallmark for success in the future. So constantly seeking ways to improve yourself and develop your knowledge. So where do you think you are on your journey of expertise and what are you going to do to explore next and seek out new information? And finally, we ended with humility. It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. A wonderful quote there from John Wooden to round off this week's episode. Make sure you get in touch with questions or feedback. David's on Twitter and you can get in touch with him through the handle at DJ2Turner1. That's at DJ2Turner1. If you enjoyed the show, please hit subscribe and perhaps even leave us a review. Make sure you give us a follow on social media. Just search for The Rogue Monkey Podcast and check out our website www.theroguemonkey.org. Next week, we've got a really unusual story for you. From operating table to global podium, the story of a transplant athlete. Make sure you tune in. Have a great week, everyone.